0: It's good to see you all here today. Um, I've been having a conversation with a few new faces over the last few weeks, and I'm seeing a pattern of people that used to go to the full gospel many years ago, uh, didn't go to church for a while, making a return. Uh, and I just want to say it's it's such a blessing to have you back here, and it's, it's an honor to be able to worship together with you. Um, just a few things I want to touch on. Um, we mentioned the food, so the Mother Church has... Kindly offered uh, to to serve us food every Sunday after service, except for the first Sunday of each month. Um, it's such a blessing that they're willing to do this for us. And there was such a you know a positive energy last week as we were sitting down enjoying a meal together. It was just a great opportunity uh, to have a chat with you know people that we might not get to speak with regularly. Um, the only thing that we ask. Uh, as Elsa kindly mentioned, was that you would clean up your bowl after. So if you use chopsticks, forks, whatever, um, just take it to the kitchen, wash it. It'll take like 30 seconds. Um, if you clean your own bowls, it'll just make it so much easier uh, for the mother church as well. And given that they're sacrificing to be able to serve us, uh, it only makes sense that we, we clean up after ourselves. Um, and just on that, after you eat, uh, if you could just do, do it the first thing after you eat as well, rather than, you know, you can you can sit around, enjoy a conversation, uh, but just if you could be quick and efficient, just because there might be other people that need to use uh, the cutlery as well. And also, um, you know, the Mother Church, ideally, we want them to serve us and not have to stick around waiting for us. Uh, so if we could just bear that in mind, uh, clean up after yourselves, and yeah, that's it. Um and one more announcement as well, uh, I wanted to touch on it. the CG groups. Uh, we've had <clears throat> an awesome number of signups. Uh, if you haven't signed up yet, uh, I'm going to look around the room. I don't, I don't know if who hasn't signed up, but I'm just going to look. If I make eye contact with you, you know I'm talking about you. If you haven't signed up, please sign up. Uh, we, we've always been blessed with amazing CG leaders each year. This year is no diff- different. So if you haven't signed up yet, scan the QR code. Uh, get plugged into a, a, a CG group. It's a great community to be a part of. Uh, it's a great way to get plugged in, uh, just into the fellowship of brothers and sisters. Um, it's one thing to be able to worship uh, in corporate worship at church on Sundays, but something more special about worshiping in the context of a smaller group. And for the university students, if you're you know young, um, first year especially, uh, please, we've Please sign up because we've actually got something special for you guys. We have three people that have volunteered uh, to have, I think for the first time, an exclu- exclusive uni CG group. Uh, and there's going to be a heavy social element to this as well. Uh, it's actually, I was uh, I met with um, the three leaders yesterday, Chung, Jong, Jonggyu, and Inso. Uh, I'm very excited, so excited that my wife and I have, Pledge to come out to your CG group as much as possible, because it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, And on that note, I think that's it. Um, Yeah, let's jump into today's word, uh, which comes from Mark 14, verses 43 to 52. Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. And the word of God reads, And immediately while he was speaking, Judas came But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked." Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're nearing closer and closer uh, to the climax and the end of Mark's Gospel. Uh, As we examine this passage today, this scene of Judas's betrayal coming to fulfilment, The arrest of Jesus, uh, the actions of the apostles. Uh, We pray to be able to hear and understand and discern the truth of your word. We pray to be able to hear your voice, uh, but also to be able to submit and obey your voice as we unpackage your will for your people. Lord, I pray that you would preserve my voice throughout this sermon. Uh, be able to speak clearly uh, throughout the exegesis and exposition of your word. Uh, and so I ask that you would watch over the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, I don't know if you've ever grown up hearing that term. Uh, it's what's in the heart that matters. It's the intention that's important. Uh, I learned throughout my four to five years of marriage that um, sometimes intention doesn't matter. Uh, Sometimes having the best intentions at heart uh, don't matter. It's not about how you feel, it's about what you do. Um, And I learned this very clearly when I was dating my wife and I flew to Korea um, to get ready for our wedding. And, you know, one of the things my wife wanted me to change was the way I dressed. I bought all my clothes at Kmart back then. I don't really care. I still don't really care about fashion, but I, I bought all my clothes that came out. And I remember when we were dating, my wife would look at me up and down and like, where did she buy these clothes? Like, who who told you like to dress like this is, no, no, we, we, we need to change this. And so my wife would take me to this uh, outlet store uh, in Korea. It was like 10 minutes from her place. And her mother would come with us, and we'd get in the lift, because uh, the men's clothes, clothes, like clothing area was on like the sixth floor. So instead of taking six flights of escalators, we decided to catch a lift. And as we got in the lift, my mother-in-law and my wife were standing behind me, and there were a few other people in the lift as well. And then when we got to the sixth floor, uh, I did what I was always taught to do growing up. I held my hand over the elevator door and I I ushered to my mother and mother-in-law and my wife to get off first. Because I was always told, like, ladies first, like ladies. And I remember my wife looked at me and was like, move. What are you doing? There's people that need to get out. What are you blocking? The g-? Hurry up and get out. And I was like, oh, so, 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 sorry. Sorry. And I was, like, trying to explain. She's like, why weren't you getting out? I was like, oh, like, well, in Australia, it's considered plight, like, ladies first. She's like, there's, there's, like, 20 people that were wanting to get off and you were blocked. Like, don't do that while you're here. I was like, right, okay, okay no, no problems, no problems. Anyways, after we, you know, prepared for the wedding, um, I flew back to Sydney and my wife and my mother-in-law flew back with me because they wanted to meet my mother. Like, Koreans have this thing where... The in-laws meet and have dinner or lunch before the wedding. And so they wanted to meet my mother. And while they were here, uh, I decided to give them a tour of Sydney, like my mother-in-law. And one of the places I took them to was QVB, uh, Queen Victoria building. And they were taking photos because it's quite a nice, like, it's good architecture. And At some point, we're like, oh, let's go up to the top floor because there's a cafe there. And so we got in a lift. And as we got in a lift, there was an elderly couple, like a really, like they looked like they were in their 70s or early 80s, and they were getting off on the same floor as us. And as the doors opened, this elderly man put his hand over the door and signaled for his wife to get up first. And my wife looked at that and was like, oh, that's so sweet. And I was like, oh. So when he does it, it's sweet. And when I do it, I'm like an annoyance. And she was explaining, we're not in Korea. This is is culturally different. And it was one of those moments that I realized sometimes the intention isn't what my wife wants. And we're going to see how intention plays out in the context of today's passage. Because we'll see through the actions of Peter and the apostles, intention isn't everything. Now, if you recall last week's passage, you'll remember that we were able to see Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And we saw that Jesus, for the first time, it was like all the confidence and conviction that he demonstrated throughout his three-year ministry. It was all gone. He was rolling, writhing on the ground in agony, praying to the Father. And he prayed and he petitioned God and asked him if this cup, Which was represented, which symbolized and represented sin and wrath. Jesus asked the Father if this cup that he's meant to drink down, if it could be passed from him, please, now would be a good time to make that happen. But then Jesus prayed also, get not what I will, but what you will. Not what I desire. At the end of the day, I want what comes to pass to be what it is that you desire. And we saw that the answer from heaven in in response to Jesus' prayer was a resounding no, because God did not answer Jesus' petition. Now, the whole time while Jesus was praying this, we saw that Peter, James, and John, who were meant to be praying in support of Jesus, what were they doing? They were sleeping. Didn't even last an hour. Jesus said, pray. Pray and they fell asleep. And the passage concluded after Jesus having had to wake them up two times and rebuke them. It ended with Jesus coming back a third time, but this time to let them know, time's up. The hour has come, God hasn't answered my prayer and his response and his will is that I'm to be betrayed and killed. And it's while he's saying these words that today's passage begins, verse 43, and immediately, Mark likes to use that term immediately, if you remember, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So as he's saying these words to Peter, James, and John, that the time is up, this garden of Gethsemane, this mount of olives that they were on that was empty only a few minutes ago is suddenly packed with people. And this is where gospel harmonization is important to understand all the details. When I say gospel harmonization, I mean looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as they recollect the same events and collaging all the details together. Because you, you got to remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were eyewitness accounts to the life of, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because there are four different eyewitness accounts, they're gonna contain different details. If four people witness the same event, they're gonna remember different things. They're gonna look at it from a different perspective. And that's what we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And so if we look at Matthew's gospel, Matthew 26, 47 tells us it wasn't just a crowd that entered into the garden. It says that it was a great crowd. Uh, and if you remember our series in Mark, whenever um, the writers used the word great, we know that it, it's not just like 10, 20 people, but probably in the hundreds, if not thousands. I think in today's passage, it was closer to the hundreds. I'll explain why in a moment. But today's passage tells us that this crowd, this great crowd, they were all armed with swords and clubs. Now, when you think of a a club, like a club that you beat someone with. Uh, we tend to have this automatic default assumption that this was like an angry mob, like with pitchforks and, you know. Um, but that's not what's happening here. Because if we look at John's gospel, John tells us the demographic, the, the types of people that made up this great crowd. It says in John chapter 18, verse 3, so Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. This wasn't just an angry mob. By contrast, this was a very organized crowd, and it was an organized crowd that was made up of two people groups. On the one hand, you had officers that were sent by the chief priests, the Pharisees, And the religious authorities, these would have been representatives from the temple and also like security from the temple, like the temple guards. And presumably, these people had come to issue the arrest warrant to Jesus. So on the one hand, you had a group of people that represented the religious authorities, the temple guards, it's like the temple police. On the other hand, you had another group of people that John tells us were a band of soldiers, and these were soldiers soldiers that Judas had procured these were roman soldiers who at this point in history were considered some of the most well organized well trained and most disciplined soldiers on the face of the earth and so these two groups of people come together to form one great crowd and they start systematically filing and marching up the mount of olives into the garden of Gethsemane. And then verses 44 to 45 says, Now the betrayer, was Judas, had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under God. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, you might wonder why was the sign needed? Uh, I would say that a sign was probably needed because it was dark. Um, And unlike today, like nowadays, if you were to, if someone were to say, do you know what John Piper looks like? Most people know. If you were to ask, do you know what Francis Chan looks like? You'd probably know. Why? Because we have access to social media. We have access to YouTube, the internet. But back then, they didn't have this. So whilst they might have heard about Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the son of man, Jesus, the one who claimed to be be the Messiah. They probably didn't all know what he looked like. And the other thing was that it was dark. This is in the middle of the night that they've marched up a mountain. They've got torches, but it would still be pretty dark. And so they need a sign from Judas to point out which person is the one that they need to arrest. Because how comical would it be if they came to arrest Jesus and brought back the wrong person? And to the very end, Judas puts on a show. The irony is that Jesus knows that Judas has betrayed him. Jesus knows what Judas has done. And even more ironic, Judas knows that Jesus knows what Judas has done. And Judas, in pointing Jesus out, could have just walked in with the soldiers and be like, yeah, that that guy, arrest that guy. But he doesn't. For whatever reason, Judas puts on a show almost like he's he's putting on like a, a mask of innocence, and he goes up to Jesus and goes, Rabbi or master or teacher. And he chooses to betray Jesus with a kiss. Now the sign in the Greek it's phileo, that's the word that they use, comes from the word phileo, which is Brotherly love That's where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That was the sign that they agreed upon, but then the word that's used when G- Judas actually kisses Jesus, it's, it's, it's a much more intense. It's not like you know Europeans like a, mwah, mwah, like that it was like a mm, like this, he just pressed and just mashed his face into Jesus' cheek. That's the word that's used to express his love for Jesus. In addition to this kiss and this so-called, you know, um, greeting of honor, Rabbi. uh, In addition, John's Gospel tells us that Jesus says to them, "Who are you looking for? Whom do you seek?" Now they use Jesus's worldly term, "Jesus of Nazareth," like J of Blacktown. They say, "We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth." And then Jesus responds with, I am he. Uh, uh, yeah, Jesus of Nazareth, that's me. And John's gospel tells us the, that the moment Jesus says, I am he, that they all fell back onto the ground. Now, that's a bit weird, isn't it? It's like, if I said I'm Jay of Blacktown, no one's going to fall back. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's from Blacktown. You might, like, you wouldn't fall back in fear. You'd think, oh, must have been a long drive to get to church. But they fell back. Why? Were they afraid? Did they fall down out of fear? I don't think so. I think if they fell down, they fell down out of fury. Because the words Jesus used when he said, I am he, were actually the Greek words, ego, I me. I am who I am. And Jesus has used this before in Mark's gospel. And it's used in scripture in the book of Exodus. And what is it? It's the name that God gives himself. Before Abraham was, I am, is what Jesus says to the religious leaders, and they try to kill him for it. Why? Because in declaring the words, ego, I, me, Jesus is claiming to be God. Not just a man sent by God but God incarnate. That's why they fell down, because they were furious. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, Ego, I, am me. I am Jesus, the one through God. And the passage tells us that they then laid their hands on him and seized him. Uh, and when it says seized, it's not like they slapped handcuffs on him. Uh, this term seized means it's it's an... It implies that they, they manhandled him with violence. Um, so much so that when they grab Jesus, Peter draws out his sword. Now, Mark's gospel doesn't tell us it's Peter. Other gospels tell us it's Peter. And he strikes a guy called Malchus, who was a servant of the high priest, and he cuts off Malchus's right ear. Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment. Because if you remember in last week's sermon... What was Paul's bold declaration to Jesus? Paul said, "I thought Paul, Peter. Peter said, I'm willing to die for you. Like, I know you said you're going to be betrayed, you're going to go to the cross. That's not going to happen. I'm willing to die for you. And we joked about this because we we, we knew. And Jesus knew that he'd abandoned Jesus in the very next passage. He denied Jesus three times in less than 24 hours. I would say less than 12 hours. But then couldn't we look at this action, him drawing out his sword and cutting off Malchus's right ear? Couldn't we say that that was the actions of a man being true to his word, defending Jesus? And I would say maybe but not really because what was Peter's promise Peter's promise was that he was ready to die alongside Jesus. To die. The act of drawing a sword and cutting or slashing Malchus, in my opinion, wasn't an act of courage on Peter's part. It wasn't you know, a demonstration of Peter's allegiance to Jesus. I would say it was an act of fear. It wasn't the actions of someone who, as Peter said, was really willing to die, but rather the actions of someone who was trying to avoid dying. Now, I would say that in the 33 year life of Jesus, the events of today's passage you know, you had satanic attacks, you had demon possessed people, you had religious authorities trying to bring down Jesus and kill him. I would say, arguably, that this particular passage posed a the greatest danger out of all of Jesus' ministry to Jesus' mission and his journey to the cross. More than anything Satan did, this posed the greatest danger because you've got to remember the Jewish authorities, they wanted Jesus dead. And they wanted to do it legally without causing too much trouble. They would have been looking for any reason to excuse themselves and justify killing Jesus. And in approaching Jesus to issue an arrest warrant, because they, they, they'd received the arrest, arrest warrant from the chief priest, but that didn't mean they had the authority to kill him. They still had to take him for, before Pilate to get permission, because they couldn't just kill someone. They had to get permission from Rome. And so they still had their work cut out for them after they'd arrest Jesus. But in this scene, because of what Peter did, remember, they've come into this garden to issue an arrest warrant they've got the temple guards with them and they've got the band of roman soldiers the moment that peter drew his sword and struck malchus in my opinion that would have been the golden ticket for the jewish authorities the reason that the, the legitimate reason that they've been waiting for to be able to legally kill jesus and all of his followers because remember rome did not tolerate Rebellion or insurrection. The moment there was a hint of rebellion, rebellion, they just wipe you out. And so in this moment, this guy who claimed to be the king of the Jews, his right-hand disciple has pulled out a sword. That's cause enough for this band of Roman soldiers to massacre Jesus and everyone else that was present. And so as Malchus lay there clutching the right side of his head, where his ear used to be, the air, the silence in the air would have been drowned out by the sounds of all the soldiers pulling out their swords to get ready to kill Jesus and the apostles. And it's in this moment that the Jewish representatives, the temple guards, they could have commanded, kill them and slaughtered everyone. Now, fortunately, for Peter and the apostles, when we read Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus turns to Peter, rebukes him, tells him, put your sword away, and then he bends down, touches the ear of Malchus, and heals it. And like with every miracle that we've looked at in Mark's gospel, this wasn't a gradual healing. It was an instant and complete healing, it wasn't that Jesus had just stemmed the bleeding and just like sewed his ear back on and just left it sort of hanging. Yeah, you'll be all right. Uh, it would have been an instant healing where an ear would have grown back. Malchus's ear was fully restored, like as if it had never left his head to begin with. And thank goodness this miracle was performed, not just for Jesus's sake, but for Peter's. Because when it came to the law, like I said, from a Roman legal perspective, it could be argued that Peter had committed an act of rebellion and and resistance, not only to Rome. sorry, not only to the Jewish authorities, but to Rome. Because who was present in the crowd? Roman soldiers, a militia of Roman soldiers. And from a Jewish legal perspective, Peter hadn't just committed an act of violence, but this was attempted murder. Because at the end of the day, there was no mention that Malchus had a weapon. There was no mention that Malchus had swung first, so you can't make a case for self-defense. And not only that, what was the part of the body that Peter would have had to have swung his sword to cut off the ear? The head. So it's very Difficult to argue that it was self defense and would have been even more harder to argue that it was an accident. How do you accidentally swing a sword at someone's head and cut off their ear? If you swing a sword at someone's head, your intention clearly is to end their life. And had Peter killed Malchus, or had Peter been killed because of his actions on that night, or, you know, as a result of being arrested and sentenced to death, it would have put an end to Jesus' plans for the establishment of the church. Because Jesus' plan and God's will for Peter was quite significant. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If Peter had died, Jesus' will would have been compromised, and if this promise was compromised, that would make Jesus what? A false prophet, because he made a prophecy that didn't come to pass. Peter could have brought an end to God's plan, and so by healing Malchus and restoring his ear, Jesus wasn't just being compassionate to Malchus, but he was ensuring that Peter would be protected, that the will of God for the cross and the establishment of the church would remain Uncompromised, And then Jesus stands back up and says to the crowd, Have you come out against the robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus calls out their motives. Because Jesus had always been public with his ministry. At any point, if they thought he was a rebel leader, a terrorist, or an insurrectionist, they had ample opportunity over the last three years to arrest him. But they didn't and Jesus calls out the fact that they came on this night in the middle of the night after Passover when they knew everyone was asleep. They came with temple guards and a band of Roman soldiers armed with clubs and swords not just to subdue the apostles and the followers of Jesus. If that was all they wanted they didn't need the Roman soldiers. But the reason they brought the Roman soldiers were that they were worried that people in town might wake up. Because remember, Jesus was popular with the people of Judea, Jerusalem, and Galilee. If people caught wind of what was happening to Jesus, then a mob would have risen up. People would have been like, hey, they're trying to get Jesus. Let's stop him. But they brought a band of Roman soldiers to make sure that any event like this that would arise they'd be able to put a stop to it in an instant. And Jesus calls them out. He calls them out on this. Like, you cowards, you had three years to arrest me, and now you're arresting me like a bunch of cowards when you know everyone's asleep. And then what do do the apostles do? What do the followers do? The guys that just said only moments ago, we're ready to die alongside you. Anywhere you go, we'll be alongside you. We're ready to die for you. What do they do? Verse 50 they all left him and fled. And the apostles fulfilled the prophecy of Jesus that they would abandon him. Now, Mark's gospel uh, makes an interesting admission because one guy, it says, did stay behind, uh, a young man. And many scholars believe that this young man was Mark himself, the guy that wrote this gospel. Um, we don't know if it's true, but tradition has it that it was Mark. And it's a very bizarre inclusion into Mark's gospel because when you read it, it feels very unnecessary to add this in. Um, if it was Mark, it says that he decided to follow Jesus from a distance. And this is why it's bizarre. He decided to follow Jesus up a mountain into a garden with a loin of cloth. His underwear. His underwear not wearing anything else, decides to go for a stroll up a mountain in his underwear. Why? I have no idea. It doesn't tell us. And then they see him. The Jewish leaders see him. They try to arrest him. They seize Jesus. The apostles run away. But this guy's still there, maybe like watching from behind the trees. But then they see him. And the passage tells us that they manhandled him. And it must have been a savage manhandling because the passage concludes that after he managed to get away, they must have wrestled and ragdolled him in such a way that even his undies got ripped off. And he ran away completely naked. Now, fortunately for him, it was the middle of the night. And fortunately for him, this guy was, if it was Mark, uh, he was from Jerusalem, which was only a couple of hundred meters away. But even so, even if it is night, even if your home isn't that far away, you're leaving a public garden. You're coming down the mountain with not even your underwear. You're completely naked. Where do you go? Even if you think, oh, I'll go home as quickly as I can. When you go to Jerusalem, you have to go through the city gates. Imagine walking through the city gates of your hometown. The guards like, what? The heck is this guy's got no, where did this guy come from? Like I have so many- you have so many questions. And even in the dead of night, you'd still have to enter the city gates and make the walk back home. It might have been only a couple of hundred meters, but to put it in a bit of context, I had lunch at Ovenbeck down the road. Probably the same distance. The thought of having to make the journey from oven bake with not even my underwear and somehow, even if it's nighttime, to somehow get from oven bake through the doors of this church with no clothes on. How terrifying would that be? And that's how today's passage ends. What a bizarre ending to a passage. And so as the apostles have run away, Mark has his undies ripped off and runs away naked. you you left scratching and I spent so many days like, what what do you take away from a passage like this? Like, make sure you don't get your underwear ripped off. Like, what what do you take away from something like this? And I thought about it and I was typing and retyping my sermon even until this morning. But I want to make an observation. Because when we look at Judas, the temple guards, and the Roman soldiers entering the garden of Gethsemane, as opposed to the apostles, we see two very different reactions. You see, on the one hand, you see the apostles, and namely Peter, whipping out a sword and striking the ear of Malchus. And I mentioned that this wasn't, in my opinion, an act of courage, but an act of fear, because Peter said moments earlier, Not that I'm willing to kill for you, but that I'm willing to die for you. And in that moment, Paul was ready to kill for Jesus so that he wouldn't die. It was the opposite of what he would promised Christ. And by contrast, when we look at Jesus, who had the means to live if he wanted, understood that it was the will of the Father for him to die. He had it back to front. To Peter's mindset and approach to the situation. And Matthew's gospel tells us that, you know, Peter actually, rebukes, Jesus rebukes Peter and says, you know what, do you think I can't appeal to my father to send 12 legions of angels? Like, you're trying to do everything you can to not die. I have the ability to not die. That's not what's at stake here. I have to die. It's, this isn't about preserving my life, my mission is to die. Now, in Peter's defense, you could probably make an argument, like if, if I were Peter, I'd be like, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not trying to not die. I'm trying to protect you, Jesus. And it wouldn't be an unreasonable argument. But the problem was that Jesus' Jesus's actions were based off a clear understanding of what God's will was. Jesus had prayed. He knew what the Scriptures prophesied. He prayed discerned the will of God, and his actions were based off a clear understanding and obedience to what that will was. Peter, on the other hand, was acting and responding based on what he thought God's will should be. Not what he thought God desired, but what he thought God should do. And sometimes we have a tendency to do the same thing when it comes to living as followers of Christ, where we might have a strong conviction of what we think God wants us to do, that it's X, Y, and Z, that we should do things a particular way, church should be done a particular way, or I should live my life a particular way, all the while being oblivious to what it is that God desires. And it's often driven by three things, one of three things, maybe two, two out of three, like three things. Number one, a lack of knowledge of God's word. Many times we don't know the will of God because we don't read the will of God. We have the will of God in scripture. It's given to us. And when we look at the humanity of Christ, one of the reasons God came as a man was to show the world how a man is to live discerning the will of God and obeying the will of God. And when we see Christ, we see that the scriptures are of primary importance. Before Jesus begins his ministry, Satan comes to tempt him and says, if you're God, turn these rocks into bread. If you're God, throw yourself off this high point. If you're God, bow down and you know, worship me. And what does Jesus respond with? It is written, it is written, it is written. Even in today's passage when he rebukes the great crowd, he says, Let the Scriptures be fulfilled. It is written. And often our non-conformity to God's will, it, it often begins with a lack of understanding of God's word. Now another area is a lack of prayer. Part of the reason we don't conform to God's will is because of a lack of prayer. And we often attribute a lack of prayer to we're too busy, we don't have time. And maybe it started off with that being the case. But an absence of prayer comes, believe it or not, from human pride. Because an absence of prayer Even if it started off with us good intentions, I want to pray, but I just don't have the time right now. Our absence of prayer stems from pride because to not pray is for us to really say to God, I can do this without you. I don't need your power. I've got this. I don't need your will or your plan because I know how to get this done. I don't need your wisdom because I can guide myself. Yet when we look at the person of Jesus Christ in the garden of Gethsemane, we find an individual, even if it means he has to writhe in agony in the early hours of the night. He understands the importance of prayer, discerning the will of God, and praying for strength to be able to conform to the will of God. Now, like with Peter, we could argue that we have good intentions, you know what, I might not pray as much as I should, but I've got good intentions. I've got God's glory at heart. But to ultimately press forward in our service of God in the absence of prayer, then we're committing the sin of pride. Because we're saying, I can do this without you. That's why we attribute prayerlessness to being a sin. Because it's the Christian actively declaring That I know better than God. Now, the third thing is praying without humility. Because even in prayer, there is danger of pride. How? There's danger when we try to weaponize prayer. When we look to Christ, we say, you know, we see that he prays a lot. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying for hours. Yet, how did Jesus pray? He prayed with this mindset of, yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet so often the way we pray is, God, I'm going to do this and I need you to bless this. Not, it is written, but this is how I'm going to do it and I need your blessing on this. Nowhere have I seen this more than in youth ministry when I see young teenagers praying. God, I want this girl to be my girlfriend. Please, God, make this person my, this is, I will do anything for you. Please, God, bless this. But that's the prayer of pride, isn't it? Because we're putting our plan, we don't care what God's plans are. We don't care, you know, what's written in scripture. We don't care to discern what God desires. He's our plan, God. Bless this. And I'm going to pray and pray until you make this happen. And I'm not going to accept anything else. But what do we see in Christ? We don't see him weaponizing prayer in Gethsemane. We see him laying out God's will, saying, I understand this is your will, because it's written. It was prophesied as early as Genesis 1. This was, this was what you desired. If there's another way, now would be a good time to let me know. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. He prayed understanding the will of God, to confirm the will of God and to be able to obey the will of God. He prayed with humility. Now, I'm going to conclude with the question, does that mean that we can't be bold in prayer? No, absolutely we can be bold in prayer. God calls us to be bold in prayer. You read 150 chapters of the Psalms, you find the psalmist often praying with conviction and boldness but it's a boldness that stems from humility. It's a boldness that knows that because we worship a sovereign God and his will is crystal clear according to scripture, that no matter what the the forces of darkness, no matter what Satan tries to do, despite how sinful I am, that this will is gonna come to pass with me or without me. And because God is sovereign and this is going to come to pass, we can pray with conviction and boldness because our God is an all-powerful sovereign God whose plans cannot be frustrated by the will of man or by the will of Satan. So those are just three things that I want us to reflect on this week. Understand that God's will is revealed through scripture because as Jesus demonstrated repeatedly, he understood it is written. He understood that every aspect of this ministry was so that the Scriptures could be fulfilled. Secondly, we can't press forward with a lack of prayer. Prayerlessness is sin. And finally, we have to pray with humility. We cannot weaponize prayer, but we need to be discerning of God's will through the Scriptures, praying for humility in obeying the Scriptures and praying for power to be able to carry out God's will. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that your will isn't a mystery to your people, that you reveal yourself perfectly through your son, Jesus Christ. You reveal your will through the living word that has been guiding and shaping your people for the last 2,000 years, and continues to transform and shape us today. Father, I pray for FLM and for myself that we would be a congregation of praying saints. Not praying in pride, but praying in humility. Not laying our plans and our ambitions before you and blackmailing you into blessing them, but to have the humility to accept your will, discern your will and pray through our understanding to be able to obey your will. Sometimes it's easy to say and difficult to do, but Lord, just as Christ demonstrated in Gethsemane, even if it means praying in anguish and agony. We pray that you would break us where we do need breaking. Tear down any pillars of pride in our heart so that our goal primarily and first and foremost would be you, your glory and your will. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.